Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Fleet Mall. Fleet Mall is an author, consultant, trainer, and executive coach who facilitates deep transformation for individuals and organizations through a philosophy and a training program he's developed called Radical Responsibility. From 1985 to 1999, Fleet was imprisoned on charges of drug trafficking, and he spent the last 20 years since his release articulating a philosophy that actually began and evolved while he was in prison, the philosophy of radical responsibility. And since his release, he has served tirelessly working for positive social transformation as a meditation teacher, social entrepreneur, peacemaker, and end-of-life care educator. With Sounds True, Fleet has published a new book called Radical Responsibility and an audio training series called Living with Radical Responsibility. If you're someone who, like me, has a tendency in certain situations to blame, justify, to want to be right, or to hold on to resentment or grievances, I hope you'll join me for this incredibly empowering conversation on radical responsibility with Fleet Mall. Fleet, you and I had a previous conversation on Insights at the Edge, and we talked in quite some depth about the 14 years that you spent in prison from 1985 to 1999 on charges of drug trafficking. And all the great work, actually, that you were, I'm going to say miraculously, able to accomplish while you were in prison, including setting up two nonprofits, the Prison Dharma Network and the Prison Hospice Association. And in that previous conversation, you shared the work that you did in training prisoners in mindfulness and your vision of prison reform. And also, I heard a whisper at that time a few years ago about a book you were working on called Radical Responsibility. And now, a few years later, Radical Responsibility exists and is being published. And we get to have this follow-up conversation about that body of work that you've created that's really an outpouring 
of, I'm going to say it, your, your genius and the crucible of your life. So let's begin. Talk a little bit about how the roots of this philosophy, this way of living, was born in you while you were in prison, or maybe even before. Yes, certainly um, you, you referenced some of the things I was able to accomplish in prison. Really, everything I was able to accomplish for myself in terms of turning my own life around, in terms of the path of personal transformation and evolution that I was able to do during those 14 years, make good use of my time, as well as what I was able to create for that community I was in there, that prison community, and for the larger world, really was all grounded in this approach that I call radical responsibility. I'd say in terms of pre-prison, the roots of it uh, were certainly in my Dharma training um, with my teacher, Trung Phrum and just my overall Dharma training. Um, you know, that brings up, how did I end up in prison after all that extensive Dharma training? We covered that the last time around, but suffice it to say, I was pretty thick-headed and one of those people that came out of the 60s with a dual major. And uh, so I earned myself a 14-year federal sabbatical, and uh, and I became incredibly motivated to use that time well. But really, uh, I think it was the influence of my previous training. I, I had actually had a master's degree in, in uh, contemplative psychotherapy from uh, Naropa University, so I'd had a lot of education and a lot of training. So fortunately, when I did land in that situation and was really awoken by the fact that my son uh, who was nine years old at the time, was now going to grow up without his dad. And that was devastating, I'm sure, for him as well. And um, so I found myself in that situation really motivated to do something with my life. And I found myself in an environment that was just pervaded by anger and bitterness and really everyone's victim story. Uh, and, of course, most of these are people who society feels have been perpetrators of one kind or another, and yet they universally feel victimized by the system, by their lives, uh, by the court process, by their fall partners that turned on them, by their lawyers, what have you. And uh, all you had to do was start up a conversation with a fellow prisoner, and this ritual would ensue where they would you know, tell their victim story, and then you were supposed to tell yours. And I very quickly realized I didn't want to live in that place. Uh, I didn't want to come out of prison that way. I didn't even want to live that way in prison. And it became crystal clear to me that the only way out and through for me was to embrace 100% or even 200% ownership for the fact that I'd got myself into this situation. And, you know, I had lots of people I could have been angry at if I wanted to. I also had, uh, you know, I was doing time for a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people didn't have to do time uh, so I could do time. Um, and, you know, my lawyers and the way the prosecution, I had all those stories in my head. But I realized that I just needed to make a boundary with all that and focus on how I'd got myself into that situation and what I could do to get myself out of it and how I could, um, you know, do something positive with that time that I was going to spend in prison uh, for myself, uh, create a legacy for my son better than just his dad went to prison and try to add value to that community. So right from the very beginning, it was grounded in this idea of voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life, both the ones we can see we had a part in creating, as well as the ones that just seem to land on our head. Uh, 
not not out of any sense of self-blame. This is really getting out of the blame paradigm altogether, but rather as the only place we have any real power, over, you know, which is with ourselves. So shifting our focus to that place, it's, you could e- equally call it radical self-empowerment. Now, when you talk about getting out of the victim story. I think it's a very, very, very powerful idea. And I notice sometimes I hesitate to use that kind of language because I might be talking to someone and they'll say something like, yeah, easy for you to say, you have no idea what happened to me. And I have every right to feel victimized by the abuse or the betrayal or the person who ripped me off. And when you say that, people can take it not in an empowering way, but in an I'm going to kill you way. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm curious just to speak to that person who says, oh, my God, one more person who's telling me to transform my victim story when I have every right to uphold how I was trespassed. Yeah. And that's a great question, a really important question, and one that I address quite clearly in the book. You know, if I was in the right environment, uh, like some of the trainings I deliver, and somebody said that, I might say, well, how's that working for you? (laughs) But that would have to be the right environment in the right context. So, no, clearly, terrible things happen to people. And they have every right, as you were saying, to feel victimized. And they may need a lot of support, a lot of healing, uh, and so forth. And and the radical responsibility model is not really about other people. Now, of course, by putting it out there as a book, I'm suggesting it for uh, other people beyond myself. But it's really the, the consideration, I think, importantly, needs to be about ourselves. Uh, this isn't something we go around telling other people you should you know, be radically responsible. Um, but for ourselves, uh, to me, it's really the doorway into personal freedom and self-empowerment. And realizing that, like it or not, we are living at choice. And our choices have impact. So um, if I've been seriously, significantly victimized in some way, um, you know, and I had my childhood issues. I grew up in an alcoholic family, and uh, I'm sure that contributed to my involvement in in, uh, drugs and all the rest of it. Uh, You know, there was a very famous study come out, uh, the Adversive Child Experience Study, and uh, it showed that children who have adverse childhood experiences are several thousand percent more likely to end up as addicts or end up going to jail or end up in all kinds of problems. So, uh, you know, it's completely reasonable that someone may feel uh, victimized or unjustly victimized, criminally victimized by something that happens to them. And at some point, though, they are going to be making choices. And those choices are really what's going to determine their future. Now, those choices might be to seek validation for the fact that they were victimized, uh, to seek support, to build a circle of support around them, or to seek justice. And those choices could be made uh, in a self-empowering way as a way to move forward in one's life, or they could be made from... uh, from a sense of unprocessed or unresolved uh, anger and bitterness. Uh, you know, I think we all realize that, you know, for some of the terrible things that happen to people, for someone to be able to start making choices to step out of the victim mindset at some point in their life can be incredibly heroic. But if they're not able to, if they stay trapped in that sense of victimization, uh, it's going to, at the very least, be very self-limiting for their life. 
And we all know of people who have had terrible things happen to them, who have found some way to move forward in their life and often have gotten involved in trying to prevent similar things from happening to other people. Uh, there are all kinds of examples in life of people who've been in the worst imaginable situations and have found some way to turn that around. So this is not to place a burden on people who've been victimized. We should all feel tremendous empathy and compassion uh, for anyone who's suffered in that way. And, and of course, I think we all want to be committed to trying to prevent such harm in any way we can. Uh, nonetheless, at the individual level, at some point, a person's destiny and future is really going to be determined by the choices they start making. And so that's really the perspective here. And of course, we all get into what I was calling the victim mindset. And I realize that can be a loaded word in our society. It about all kinds of fairly ordinary garden variety occurrences that happen day in and day out. And those throw us right into that kind of victim mindset thinking. And the problem with that is, uh, apart from the fact that it's you know not so helpful, not the best state of mind to be in, in essence, we give away our power continually. Because if I'm unhappy and I'm really convinced that the causation of my internal state is someone or something outside myself, then I don't get to be happy again until that person or that situation changes. So I've, I've really put someone or something else or a whole group of people, whatever the situation is, in charge of my internal state. And of course, we do it all the time, but it just really doesn't make sense. It completely disempowers us. You could even say in terms of positive experiences, you know, if I'm convinced I'm really happy because of something that's happening outside myself, in the same way, I'm giving my power away because if that situation changes, now I'm unhappy, <laughs> uh, which is kind of the, you know, the roller coaster ride of our life. Uh, so again, this, this model comes from uh, a deep sense of empathy for the suffering that we all experience as human beings, and in particular, the terrible traumas and victimization that happened to children and adults. And by the way, this is a conversation about adults, not about children. Children deserve to be protected. And adults also need kindness and, and uh, validation and so forth. Uh, and at the same time, for each one of us individually, how can, the question is, how can I most empower myself to move forward in my life? So at some point, the question becomes, regardless of what happened to me, even if I have a situation or circumstance that everyone agree, would agree it's completely unjust, and everyone would agree that I had nothing to do with creating it, or even if I could tie some thread of my behavior to it, it's still totally unjust and criminal. So I, you know, nonetheless, at some point, the most salient question I could ask myself is, what can I do? You know, what can I do to shift this? What can I do to move forward in my life? Which is not self-blame. This model, the difficulty understanding this model is that we've been so enculturated into shame and blame that it's hard for us to think there could be a situation where it's not that I, if I don't get to blame someone else, I'm going to have to blame myself. This is stepping out of that paradigm altogether. You mention in Radical Responsibility, you write, the magical empowerment question is, what can I do? And, you know, what's uh, remarkable to me, Fleet, is that this whole model started forming in you while you were in prison. I mean, most people wouldn't think to ask a question like, what can I do while they're in prison? You know, I mean, you, you didn't have that many options, and yet you accomplished so much. <laughs> Well, it wasn't the question most of my fellow prisoners were asking, but, but you know, that was a very unique situation because I was in a maximum security federal prison. 
Uh, it was a federal prison hospital, medical and psychiatric, and I was part of the general population there to help run the place. So it wasn't as serious of a maximum security prison as Leavenworth or Lewisburg or one of the federal penitentiaries, but most of the patients were from those federal penitentiaries. In fact, all the patients were. So it was a maximum security institution. And so a sociologists call that a total institution, which is basically a totalitarian state where the authorities have absolute control and absolute power. And in that facility, if you really tried to directly buck the system, you would be back in the psych ward in four-point restraints on a concrete bunk being pumped full of halidol or thorazine and hosed out at night, uh, literally. So, you know, resistance was futile. Uh, and uh, so uh, how do you get something done in that environment? Also, anytime you would ask, uh, almost anytime you would ask a staff person, an administrator, uh, any anyone from the prison staff, you know, could we try this or could we start this program or have you thought about that? The answer would always be no. And if you were audacious enough to ask why, which could even get you in trouble just asking why. But if you did, they always had a story and answer, well, we used to do that, but some inmate abused it. And so that's not happening. Or they would have some story like that. So how do you get anything done in an environment like that? So I was continually falling back on my Dharma practice and experience about coming from a place of kindness and compassion, as well as being respectful and having integrity and being consistent. And I was just continually living in that question, what can I do? How might I approach this person? Not in any kind of manipulative way, but how, how can I genuinely get in relationship with this place, with a certain person, and, uh, and find a way where there's a win-win where somebody might say, yeah, maybe it is worth trying that. And that approach led to two national movements that led to countless programs in that particular prison over those 14 years, and really was the birth of this book. Mm -hmm. Now, the book Radical Responsibility offers a model, as you said. It offers a framework for how we move to this place of choice and empowerment, no matter what's happening in our life. And, you know, it's not that easy a framework to introduce people to, Fleet. There's a lot of nuance and depth to it. But I wonder here in this conversation if you can make a go of it and introduce what you call moving from a drama zone in our life into an empowerment zone. Yeah, I'll do my best. Actually, I'd like to back up for just a minute and still in terms of the roots of this uh, to mention uh, one of the roots of this is uh, a program uh, called The Event. Uh, during my time in prison, uh, I connected with a man named Purna Steinitz, and he was leading a, a secular personal evolution, personal transformation seminar out in the community called The Event, and got interested in some of my writings. I've been publishing things from inside prison and various journals uh, about being a Buddhist prisoner and my journey of the work I was doing, the hospice work, and so forth. And he wanted to use some of those writings in his post-event curriculum that he had for participants in his trainings. And so we got in a relationship, and I got very interested in the work he was doing, felt a strong affinity to it. And it turned out he was going to offer an event in the town where this prison was located. And I convinced two of the prison psychologists who I had a relationship, one who was a sponsor for the hospice program and one who was involved with the 12-step work, uh, I convinced them to go out and do it, and they liked it and got it into the prison, which was pretty magical because it's a very hardcore training with, with intense rage work and very physical grief work, rage work. And I think if the prison officials had known what it was, they would have never let it in. But, but it did get in, and we did four of them before 
before I left uh, prison and I'm still leading it. I just led one about three weeks ago. And uh, so, uh, and actually that training began in a federal prison. It began, it was started by a psychiatrist and an inmate in Marion Federal Prison, which was built to replace Alcatraz. So it was the federal supermax before the one that was built in Florence, Colorado. And it's still basically a supermax, very dangerous place and all mostly gang members and everybody on lockdown. And back in the 70s, a psychiatrist named Martin Groder started a therapeutic community there. And this inmate got involved with him and they developed this model. And eventually the inmate who was never supposed to get out of prison got paroled. That's a great story because they came to him and said, we're going to parole you. And he said, I'm not ready to go yet. I haven't finished my training yet. <laughs> and, and amazed, they said, well, let us know when you're ready. And 18 months later, he left. And eventually my, my friend Porna met him and, and got trained in his model and then uh, was empowered to start his own training. So this core distinction between the what I call now, I call the drama zone and the empowerment zone. That's where this came from. That's why I wanted to mention it. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay, lay out the model for us. Yeah, so the first thing we really need to do is get very familiar with the drama zone. And one key aspect of that is understanding Cartman's drama triangle. The drama triangle that was, uh, that idea model was developed by Stephen Cartman, a transactional analysis. He's still alive and I have permission to adapt his work and people can check him out online. And the drama triangle represents the basic triangle is trying triangulation that drives all human conflict. Uh, you have just like in the movies, you got a good guy, bad guy, and they constellate around, you know, some kind of victim position. So he called it the persecutor, the rescuer and the victim. And, these are not labels for people. Very important to understand we're not labeling ourselves or others. These are mind states or psychological positions that we all get into. And they're really all attempts to gain power. You know, out of a sense of, they're all really come from the victim mindset or a sense of helplessness or powerlessness. So I can, you know, try to gain power from the victim mindset from that position, or I can move and start persecuting, or I can be a rescuer in the sense that I'm that savior, fixer, kind of martyr-like rescuer that needs to be rescuing other people to feel good about myself. So these are all attempts to, to gain a sense of control or power out of a sense of helplessness and powerlessness. And they really drive all human conflict. And, you know, it's the heart of every great play, every great movie, uh, you know, the great American novel. And it's wonderful to read about it and be entertained about it. It's part of the human tragedy, the human condition, human pathos. Uh, but it's not so fun to be in the middle of it. And it actually destroys families, leads to divorces, damages children's lives, and plays out on the global stage as continual warfare and genocide and refugee crises and so forth. So this is Carpenter's Drama Triangle. And beginning, once people in, in these trainings that I lead, I lead experiential trainings around this, and, and I really set the book up to be like an experiential training, to take people through a step-by-step -step with lots of exercises. And I encourage people to have a journal close at hand and to do the work while they're going through the book. And so once people get this idea of the drama, they, they just see it's everywhere. And it's incredibly liberating because once you see it, you start to have choices about how much drama you want to keep engaging in in your life at home or at work. And I also uh, have an, uh, a concept I put out there called the drama hook. And we live in a sea of floating drama hooks. And some have got my name on them. Some have got your name, other people's names. If one of yours goes by, I don't even notice. But one of mine comes by and it's like, oh, my palm starts sweating. I'm salivating. It looks so juicy and wonderful. I just want to swallow it. 
So the discipline is learning to recognize them and, and holding our seat for five, 10 seconds and not swallowing that hook or not biting the hook like Pema Children says. Uh, I think it might be a sounds true tape, don't bite the hook. Uh, same idea, she calls that Shempa, right? Where we get triggered, we bite the hook and we take things personally and then we're hooked into another drama. So uh, we learn that model and we learn steps to get off the drama triangle. When we have gotten hooked, how do we get the hook out of our mouth? We learn how to stop and, and resource ourselves. The classic count to 10 or count to 100 before you say anything. Deep breathing, some kind of state shifting to where we regain access to the executive function in our neocortex instead of being totally under the control of the fight or flight response and where we can make better decisions. We start then owning our feelings. Instead of projecting out with blame, it's like, oh, I'm really angry. I'm really afraid. I'm frustrated. I'm sad. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm having all these feelings. And the reptilian brain can't do that. So that's moving from projective blaming language to reflective ownership language. And that begins bringing us back into full access of our brain and all our capacities. And then we can look, okay, where these feelings arise from? And this is really important distinction here because most of us feel even if we've read otherwise, we're fairly convinced that our feelings are caused by things outside of ourselves. Somebody does something and I'm upset. Somebody does something, I'm angry. Somebody does something, I'm afraid. Seems very compelling. But actually, our feelings arise around the perception of our needs getting met or not. So we all have the need for connection and autonomy and creative expression and safety and validation, respect, all these kinds of things, normal human needs, food, warmth, and shelter. When we feel like our needs are getting met, we feel good. We have all the warm and fuzzy emotions when we perceive that our needs are getting met. But if I perceive that my needs are threatened or not being met, then I start having all the challenging emotions of, you know, fear, anxiety, anger, jealousy, uh, greed, envy, hatred, all the rest of it. And very human experience, uh, grounded in the experience that I'm perceiving that my needs are threatened or not being met in some way. And of course, are my perceptions always accurate? No, we all realize our perceptions are at the very best, a limited read of a limited set of available data. And sometimes we completely misperceive situations. So once we're down to the level of our needs, like no wonder I'm angry, my need for inclusion is not being met, my need for respect, my need for autonomy, my need for connection, my need for financial, maybe something happening at work, all I see all these needs are, and then I can start, okay, is that really true? I can start going in and seeing, you know, are my perceptions accurate? And I may find out they're not that accurate, but I still may come down to some needs that I feel, yeah, these needs actually in this situation are not being met or not. Well, is this the only way I can meet these needs, right? So this takes us into a further, further reflective place away from projection and blame and into deep reflection and self-understanding. And eventually we could get to a place where maybe we could come back to a situation in an interpersonal conflict and without any charge, actually let someone know kind of what we had been feeling, but what we understand now and what our needs are and, and probably have a positive conversation because everybody has the same needs. And if we can get to that conversation without blaming someone else so that they have to be on the defensive, then you can possibly resolve things. Uh, but at the very least, we resolve it ourselves so we're not continuing to pour gas on the fire of the drama. And then sometimes we just have to make a boundary. Right. Sometimes we just have to say if, if that language, you know, if you're going to use that language, we better we better just leave this alone or this doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Let's revisit this next week. Or if you touch me again, you know, I'm going to call the police or if you talk to me that way again, I'm going to report you to human resources or whatever it is. Sometimes we just have to make a boundary to get off the drama triangle. So that's that whole thing about Cartman's drama triangle. That's one piece of the blow the line landscape. 
the other way to look at it is that what are some of the classic drama zone behaviors? And the four that we named, there are many, but the four that we named that are kind of in the, uh, the upper part of the top 10 list are blame when we're blame shifting. Instead of taking ownership, we're blaming others. Uh, justification, we're justifying our own behaviors to ourselves or others. Uh, resentment, we're holding on to old feelings and storing them up like ammunition, chewing away on them. Uh, developing grievances and holding on to grievances, which just creates more suffering for ourselves, and then being right. And that's a really powerful one. We all love to be right. We'd rather be right than be in relationship. We'll get divorced over being right. We'll lose our kids over being right. We'll go to war over being right. So these are some of the classic blow the line behaviors. So the whole thing is about recognizing this drama zone landscape and not demonizing it. It's a human condition. We all do it. We're going to find ourselves there. But when we see it, we can recognize it and make the shift. And we make that shift by recognizing, okay, here I am. I have all these storylines going in my head. I'm having all these feelings. And what can I do? What can I do? What can I do to shift it? And then we can start talking about the, the empowerment zone landscape. But that's the first of all, I don't know if you have any questions. That's kind of the drama zone landscape, which is all based on fear. It's a total focus on problems and limitations. And it, it really disempowers us. It, it's compelling. It can be juicy. You know, we get our adrenaline going and we get little emotional payoffs for blaming and justifying what I would call it kind of the junk food world of, of our emotional life, right? Quick payoff, lasting suffering. One of the things that surprised me, Fleet, about your book was the amount of attention you gave to brain science and understanding physiologically what's happening to us when we get into the drama zone when we bite the hook. Why is that so important, do you think, for people to understand the brain science of being triggered? Mm -hmm. I think it's really important in, in a number of ways. One, it, uh, it kind of depersonalizes the situation. In other words, it's like, oh, I'm such a terrible person and I'm getting hooked all the time. It's, oh, that's how my physiology works. Uh, it's a natural response. We're, we, we all have a biology biology, I'm sorry, that's set up to survive, right? Job one for any species is survival. So quite naturally, our neurobiology is set up at the most basic level for survival. And, you know, when the amygdala and the midbrain get triggered with any sense of unfamiliarity or danger or discomfort, uh, the fight or flight response starts to take over. And so this is a very automatic process and one that we don't need to feel bad about or blame ourselves for at all. So that depersonalizes it. And I also have any understanding of how it works empowers us to begin doing things that will help us override that when it's not serving us, right? So many times our, uh, those alarm bells get triggered and we're into that, we're off to the races down the rabbit hole with a fight or flight response when it's really not appropriate to the situation. Or, uh, you know, maybe the situation has passed, but we're still there, we're still hooked, right? So how do we get ourselves hooked? So understanding our neurobiology and our physiology, we can simply do something like belly breathing, or uh, counting to 10, counting to 100, or uh, the straw breathing technique that I offer in the book. These are state-shifting techniques that release the grip of the reptilian brain on our consciousness and allow us to regain access to the whole brain. So I think it really empowers us. And actually, I have a little, I've run this by several uh, uh, people like Dan Siegel and Richie Davidson and others, and you know, they kind of look at me with a raised eyebrow. They're not so sure. But I have this uh, theory that eventually 
what you know kind of the phenomenon of biofeedback right it's pretty simple if that someone hooks you up to a heart monitor that you can see you can learn to adjust your own heart rate pretty quickly just with your mind because you get this feedback loop of the visual input from seeing your heartbeat on a monitor so my theory is that as people are introduced to these mindfulness skills and uh mindfulness-based self-regulation skills earlier and earlier in life at some point we're going to be able to actually sort of direct our own neurophysiological, neurobiological processes because we actually understand it and we feel it. So anyway, that, that would be the, the further reaches of it. But just in simple terms right now, it kind of depersonalizes it. So we realize it's just the way we're wired. And second, it gives us the, uh, the insights and the tools to take responsibility for it and get in the driver's seat of our own life instead of being victimized by our circumstances all the time. Now, Fleet, you mentioned that the book Radical Responsibility is like taking an intensive workshop. It is. I mean, you have so many exercises and statements for people to reflect on. And during this section, when you're talking about the brain science of being triggered, you offer people the opportunity to take a vow that says, I will not act when triggered. This is a vow I should take. And at the same time, I remembered certain circumstances <laughs> when I was like, you know, I'm triggered and I have every right to say what I'm feeling right now. I want to be heard. And of course, I'm going to act because I'm going to express myself. And I'm wondering if you can talk to that situation where we just feel justified in sharing our view. We know mm -hmm. we're triggered, but if this is I want to talk about what's going on for me. Mm hmm. Sure. So, you know, you're describing a possible spectrum of situations, right? Uh, there could be one where, you know, I'm really triggered and I feel justified, so I'm just going to start spouting off and then to hell with what happens, right? To hell with the impact. Or there could be other situations where uh, in the context of a trusted relationship, you know, I'm just going to say what I'm feeling. Or, you know, there are some uh, in the realm of leadership training, there are some people that feel leaders need to be transparent sometimes about their emotions and, and in a controlled way, in an appropriate way, but be willing to communicate that they're upset about something, that that can be important to a, a human quality of leadership. But the, but the thing there is appropriate and controlled, right? Regulated. So if we can express our uh, emotions while at the same time self-regulating ourselves, that can actually be quite useful. So again, that comes back to these self-regulation techniques, like having a, an abiding quality of what we call interoceptive awareness, which means I'm deeply embodied. I'm really anchored in feeling my body from the inside out down to the marrow of my bones. I'm, I'm working with my breath. I'm using breath regulation techniques to stay in a resilient, uh, regulated place and from there, I can, you know, speak the truth of what I'm experiencing in the moment uh, in an effective way. Now, that's pretty, uh, it's kind of a high level of mastery in some ways. Regardless, once we say something, you know, even if we feel justified and we may express it however skillfully or unskillfully, depending on how self-regulated we are and how much access we have to the executive function in our neocortex at that moment. Regardless, once we say it, there's an impact right? There's an impact and possibly a consequence for us. So as long as we're willing to take ownership for that and then do the work that comes next, because we may have to clean something up if we didn't do it so skillfully. Hi, friends. My name is Jono Fisher. I'm the executive director of the Sounds True Foundation. 
The Sounds True Foundation is a new non-profit organisation dedicated to bringing the benefits of transformational education to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. Fleet Mall, a former prisoner and current Sounds True author, wrote, Like many prisoners, I did my time in a very isolated prison where there was no access to meditation or yoga groups. The books and tapes I received from friends and publishers like Sounds True were critical to my spiritual development and path of transformation over 14 years in prison. Receiving a particular spiritual book, CD or DVD in the mail at the right time can catalyze a whole new dimension of growth for someone behind bars. If you'd like to learn more about how the Sounds True Foundation is helping change lives or to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. Okay, so I think you've done a pretty good job of describing the drama zone, where often we find ourselves when something happens that's upsetting and we feel, you know, victimized or trespassed or betrayed or whatever it might be. How do we move out of it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a $64,000 question. So, and we might find ourselves down and not just feeling victimized, but we might find ourselves in the, you know, the judgmental, critical persecutor role, which has the victim position underlying it, or we might find ourselves hooked into those rescuing behaviors that we can get engaged in. So when we recognize that we're in the drama zone in one way or another, we're participating in drama, uh, creating drama, enabling drama, what have you, uh, within ourselves, because we all walk around with a drama triangle uh, between our ears. You know, we beat ourselves up, then we rescue ourselves, we feel victimized by ourselves, and so forth. And of course, when you have a lot of human beings with that between their ears, what do they create together? Drama, of course. So, so once we recognize we're there, how do we get out of there? Well, first of all, self-empathy, self-compassion. This isn't about blaming ourselves, and it's not about feeling bad that we find ourselves there. It's just the human condition. And the storylines going on in our head and the emotions we're feeling, it's all valid. It's just a question of whether, you know, is it serving us? And, you know, some of it may be a lot of spectrum of validity because a lot of it might be made some complete misperceptions. But nonetheless, it's a human experience. And the question is, you know, is that where we want to stay? What's that going to create for us if we keep operating from that place? So it's not about demonizing that. And it's not about blaming ourselves for it. It's a simple, fairly objective decision. Is this serving me? Is this serving others? So once we recognize it, we decide to make the shift. This is where the radical responsibility model comes in, because the way we make the shift to begin with is through what we call self-responsibility or radical responsibility. And that's this idea of voluntarily embracing 100% ownership or responsibility for each and every circumstance we face in life. Now, we all know that with some level of honesty, even radical honesty, we can see that a lot of circumstances that we find ourselves in, we had some part to play in it. Uh, we may have uh, we may have actually created it altogether, or at least we contributed to it, or we uh, we may have you know set ourselves up for it in some way because we all have these internalized scripts that we made up when we were kids, and 
they would keep trying to prove or right until they're not. So, you know, so we may be setting ourselves up for this in some unconscious way, or maybe we just allowed it by being unaware, by not doing our due diligence, by being lazy communicators, by not having good boundaries, not speaking up for ourselves. So that we might find all ways, kinds of ways to recognize that we have a part in something. Again, that's not for that inquiry is not for the purpose of self-blame. It's simply for the purpose of self-understanding and insight, because when I see my role in creating, allowing, enabling, anything like that, then I say, oh, I see how that works. Well, I don't have to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. That's what that leads to, right? So it's not for the purpose of self-blame, but for self-understanding and more choices, more options. Then there may be situations that I mentioned before that we just can't see we had any part in at all. So again, it comes back to, okay, well, here I am. And, you know, I don't like it. This is terrible. Well, what can I do? What can I do? So taking that ownership and that question shifts me from the helpless, powerless, or victim mindset immediately to the realm of possibility. Well, there's always a million things we could do. There's a million different ways we can approach anything. Even if we have a boss who's a tyrant, there's limitless different ways we could approach that person, right? So there's it, that question just catapults us back into the realm of possibility. So that's the first step, self-responsibility or radical responsibility. The next step is accountability. And what we mean by that is keeping our agreements, making clear agreements and keeping them. We create a lot of drama and conflict in our lives by getting into agreements, relationships, partnerships, marriages, business deals that we have no business being in. And we got into them because we weren't willing to do the due diligence because we wanted to operate from wishful thinking. We're conflict avoidant. So we didn't really do the due diligence. And we get in there and we go walking down the road, hand in hand, whistling in the dark. I hope it'll work. I hope it'll work. And then it blows up and we don't even have a contract to work with. So, you know, doing our due diligence, making clear agreements, and then keeping our agreements so that we have integrity and people can trust us. And, you know, sometimes the world shifts on its axis and we can't keep an agreement. Well, in that case, we renegotiate. Instead of avoiding the situation or avoiding the person, renegotiate the agreement and then keep it. And if you find you're constantly renegotiating agreements, then that's something to look at as well. So at any rate, that's the second step, accountability. Then the third step is, uh, we often call it vulnerability. Uh, in some places, I don't use that term because people will interpret that as meaning weakness, right? So, but what we really mean by vulnerability is being open-hearted, being genuine, being real, right? So if, if you and I have a, a personal or professional relationship, and I don't blame my stuff on you. I don't project my stuff onto you. I take ownership for my own stuff. If I keep my agreements with you, and if I'm willing to be open, real, genuine with you, what does that create between us? Uh, connection. Connection? What else? Uh, uh, word begins, uh, with, uh, begins with a T is the word I'm looking for. Oh, you're helping me out here. Uh, a truthful yeah, relationship. I don't know. Tell me, please. Truthful relationship. Well, trust. It creates trust, right? If I'm willing to own my own stuff, not project it on you, if I have integrity, I keep my agreements with you, and willing to be open and real and genuine with you, that creates trust. And we say that trust is the ground of authentic relationship. So this empowerment zone world is a pathway into what we call authentic relationship, which is really the blue sky of human life. You know, we all, I think, I hope we all want to have powerful, uh, juicy, interesting, value-added lives, right? Purposeful lives, meaningful lives. And if we want that, then we have to have relationships of those kinds. We have to have meaningful, juicy, powerful relationships. And those are created in this way. That's how we create authentic relationships. 
Now, down there in the drama zone, we can have plenty of buddies and playmates down there, as we all know, but that's not what we call authentic relationship. So this is like a stairway, step-by-step process of self-responsibility, accountability, and being real, being genuine, creates trust and creates authentic relationship. And, and that's sometimes what we call that empowerment zone sphere. We call it uh, the world of authentic relationship. Okay, now I need to go back to step one. Bear with me because you know I'm 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 working on sure. some stuff. I'm as we're talking, and I can imagine mm-hmm. that our listeners are in the same place, thinking about instances in their life where they're still mm-hmm. trapped in a drama triangle to one degree or another. They're still you know have a grievance or still blaming someone for something mm-hmm. or other. Okay, so a hundred percent ownership. I'm willing to own like 49% of it, just to be truthful. Anyway, I'm willing to own part <laughs> yeah, of it, but I I, it. I'm not getting up to 100%. Yeah. Okay, great question. So, Tammy, let's say you and I, you know, we have uh, some kind of a, a business agreement, something going on, and it falls into a conflict of some kind, and I'm thoroughly convinced it's all your fault, and you probably have a different version of it. And so we can't resolve it. We go meet with a mediator. And the mediator listens to both of us separately and then comes back to us together and says, you know, I don't know what to do. You're both uh, really compelling salespeople and storytellers, and you're both very convincing. And it's a he said, she said thing. And I don't know what to do with this, except we do have the videotape. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the videotape and I'm going to go find 10 people, create kind of a focus group, sort of a jury, and find 10 intelligent people that don't know either one of you, couldn't care less about either one of you and see what they have to say. So we say, okay. So the mediator goes and does that and then comes back and turns to me and says, Fleet, you know, I have to say they did agree that it was more Tammy's uh, responsibility, more Tammy's fault. And I go, wow, I'm glad you found such an intelligent group of people and they realize it's all Tammy's fault. And I feel very vindicated. The mediator said, no, Fleet, actually, no, they, they felt, you know, like, yes, she, Tammy bears the bulk of the responsibility, but they figure, you know, maybe, you probably need to own about 40% of the responsibility here. And, and well, I say, oh, well, okay, you know, and secretly I don't believe it, but as long as I agree it was more hurtful, I feel vindicated. Maybe the mediator keeps challenging me. I go, okay, all right, let me breathe. Take this in. Okay. All right. I'll admit I had some, I had some role to play, but it was really mostly Tammy's fault. And I feel vindicated by this situation. I feel good that the world agreed with me that it's your fault. So, Does that make sense? Well, it seems like it would. It seems compelling to most of us. But if I'm really convinced, and I'm very unhappy with the situation, and if I'm convinced that it's 60% or 70% or 80% or even 51% your fault, and uh, how much of my power am I giving away? Well, you could say I'm giving away 60, 70, or whatever it is, or you could say I'm giving it all away because I am unhappy. And if I really think it's your fault and you're causing it. I don't get to be happy again until you change your behavior. And I can't control you. You know, we cannot control other people. And if people get nothing else from my book, I hope they get that because they'll lead happier lives. You know, we cannot control other people. And how do we know that? Well, we've all tried a lot and probably have failed at it miserably. But we even know beyond a shadow of a doubt more compellingly that we cannot control people because we know that we ourselves are uncontrollable. No matter how much somebody tries to control us or intimidate us, we will find our way to get our needs met. You can lock human beings up in maximum security prisons. They still find ways to pass notes and make mirrors and bribe guards and what have you to get their needs met. We are endlessly creative. So we cannot control other people. So if I'm 
uh, attributing the causation of my internal state to something outside of myself, I'm giving away my power. It just doesn't make any sense. So the choice to embrace self-responsibility or radical responsibility 100% is not taking on a burden. It's not about letting the other person off the hook. And it's not about blaming myself. It's just a choice to put my energy where it's going to do some good. Now, it may be very human to kvetch for a while and have those feelings and complain and get mad. But at some point, you know, at least my way of thinking and what this book is based on, I'm going to make the shift and focus my energy where it can do some good. And that's not sitting around, you know, blaming Tammy Simon for something. It's focusing on what can I do to move my life forward, to move this situation forward, even in my own enlightened self-interest, which means my long-term interest. And, you know, it might be my short-term interest to yell at somebody or hit somebody, but that's not going to be in my long-term interest. I might go to jail. But my long-term interest, my enlightened self-interest, generally works out to be in alignment with other people's interests, too, because we're social beings. We're all interconnected. So it's a choice to focus our energy here as a radical act of self-empowerment. It has nothing to do with self-blame. It's not about letting other people off the hook. It's simply a radical act of self-empowerment and choosing to focus my energy where it can do the most good, which is with myself. How would you apply this model of radical responsibility to situations in the world where people feel that they don't have an impact, there's nothing I can do about it? How can I take 100% ownership and become empowered about things I see happening? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's related to environmental destruction or things that are really upsetting to me. How do I take ownership of that? Mm -hmm. By focusing on what we can do. Right. So it's the, the key thing. And one of the reasons that we keep I'm not talking about you, but all of us struggle with this idea is that we tend to equate responsibility and ownership and blame and accountability. We tend to lump all that into one thing. And so when I think about, you know, taking ownership, it just feels like you mean self-blame, but it's not what I mean. It's simply going back to that. What can I do? So in terms of climate change, which we're all most of us, many of us, and hopefully more and more of us are extremely concerned about all the environmental degradation issues. It's what can I do? So my partner, Sophie, uh, she ran into a resource that takes you through a whole kind of personal, um, what would the word be? Anyway, it's a, it's for a, a family with a household and so forth to kind of take themselves to a whole thing of the way they're living and their household and everything is set up, how, how they could do a better job of, of uh, having a lighter imprint on the, on the climate, right? And so she was really inspired to do that. She, I, she just told me about that a couple of days ago. So we're going to do that together. So that's something we can do. Now, there may be other things we can do in terms of advocacy and what have you, but, you know, so it's focusing on, on what we can do. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if there are heavy polluters and someone wants to make it their focus to go out and bear witness to that or speak truth to power and get into advocacy or protest work, that's also something people can do. So there's lots of things we can do, and there's no, I don't think there's any right or wrong because we're all different. We have different lives. We have different capacities. And so, but choosing what can I do to affect this thing? Another example I'd give you is, as I'm obviously still very involved in prison work, and I go into prisons all the time. And interestingly, for the last 10 years, a lot of my work has been working with correctional officers, probation officers, police, public defenders, and so forth. But I still go into prisons and work with prisoners very often. And, uh, and this comes up. I can talk about it in, with both those different populations. But when I go into prisons and I'm leading a class with uh, some of my fellow uh, prisoners, I want them to get two things. I want them to get, and, you know, I don't necessarily have to spell it out, but, you know, they'll get it by how, I'm, you know, just how I'm showing up or, you know, I, I may 
bring it into the conversation in some ways, but I, I want them to understand that I, that I, first of all, have tremendous empathy for their situation, that I, uh, that I get that most of them were almost programmed to go there by their lives and all the adverse circumstances of their childhoods and often cases of abuse and trauma of all kinds, that many of them have been victimized by racism and extreme poverty and injustice of all kinds that our criminal justice system, either by desire or default, is incredibly racist and, and unjust, and uh, that many people are over-prosecuted and so forth and so forth. I want them to get that I get all that. At the same time, I want them to get, in any way I can skillfully introduce them to this possibility, that what they're going to be able to do with their lives now that they're in this situation is completely going to be 100% determined by the choices they start making today and tomorrow and the next day. And if they want to become an advocate and go out and change the world, well, then, you know, use your time in here to educate yourself and stay out of trouble and get yourself out of prison and get out there and become an activist and get out there and change the world or whatever you want to do with your life. But, you know, no matter what the injustices are involved in how they landed in that prison cell, whatever future they can have for themselves in the prison, how they're going to live there, and then whatever future they could create for themselves beyond prison, it's going to be 100% determined by the choices they're making today, tomorrow, and the next day. And oftentimes, I'll say them just so people get it. I say, you know, you all know that there's, there's guys in here, if it's a male prison, you know, there's guys in here that do hard time. And some of them, you know, do hard time, get depressed, suffer on their own, and some of them make it miserable for everybody else. And then some people learn to do their time in a better way. And, you know, and, you know, we all respect ourselves and others when they know how to do their time. Right. So what's the difference there? Well, they're making choices, right? They're making choices. So there you're making choices that impact the quality of your time while you're in here. And in the same way, whatever you're going to create for yourself in your life is going to be based on that. So it's that combination of uh, introducing people to the notion of choice, which is not a new idea. Marcus Aurelius, one of one of the uh, Stoic philosophers way back in the Greco-Roman times uh, talked about, um, you know, most, I'm paraphrasing here, but most people feel their destiny is determined by their circumstances. But in fact, our destiny is determined by our response to those circumstances. Which brings me to something I wanted to ask you, Fleet. You know, first of all, I just want to say, I want to meet you in the empowerment zone. And I think probably our listeners do too. And it's a journey. It's not easy. And this was one of the exercises you offered that I thought was particularly challenging. It's in the fourth section of the book where we're really stepping into the path of radical responsibility. And you write that the exercise is to see circumstances as neutral. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Could I actually see circumstances, things that are occurring as neutral? So explain to our listeners what you mean by that. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And when I deliver radical responsibility trainings, circumstances of neutral is one of the key distinctions in this book, and it can be a tough one to get. So when I deliver uh, radical responsibility trainings in person, and I really try to create the same experience with the book, I lead people through a process where uh, they go into some story they have in their adult life where they feel like they were victimized in some way, even in a garden variety kind of way. They got a bum deal. They got the wrong end of the stick. Somebody took advantage of them in some way. And I have them go full blown into it. And I have them either with a partner actually 
you know, just start telling that whole story full blown, like it just happened to them to try to convince their partner that they were truly victimized and get that person to be their rescuer and so forth. And I just have them go full blown into this. And then we identify all the themes that come out of those stories, injustice, betrayal, abuse of power, being taken advantage of, all these kinds of things. And then what were the feelings they were experiencing when that happened to them? Anger, uh, you know, uh, hurt, uh, disappointment, overwhelmed, shock, disbelief, uh, frozen, uh, vengeful, uh, you know, sometimes even shame or, or guilt or sadness, all these kinds of feelings. So we get this whole landscape up there and I put it up on a, on a easel pad and uh, down in the area uh, what I call the drama zone. So we get all that up there. And then I ask them to make a shift and I say, okay, let's revisit those same circumstances. I'm not asking you to make anything up here. Go back to that actual situation that happened to you in the past. And we're going to revisit that and tell the story from a different perspective. We're going to tell it from the perspective of ownership. And I give them a little rubric called CPA to help them with that. CPA, like certified public accountant. But in this case, it means the C stands for looking if there's any way I can see that I caused it or contributed to it, any way at all. Or the P is, is there any way that I'm promoting this or setting myself up for it? We all know people, not ourselves, of course, but those other people that get in the same dead-end job or the same conflict or the same bad relationship again and again, and you have to wonder if there isn't some internal script going on there. And we all have versions of that. So is there some way I'm promoting it or setting myself? Or the last one is, A, allowed it. Is there any way I just allowed it by not paying attention, not being aware, being naive, or not doing my due diligence, or not having good boundaries? not speaking up for myself and so forth. So go back to the story, begin with the pronoun I and start retelling the story from that perspective and just find anything you can own and then just let it go from there. So people do that. And then we, after we finish, we get the whole group to put all the new storylines they have up there, which are the things they recognize. Okay, I was people pleasing, I was enabling, I didn't do my due diligence, I was conflict avoidant, I was a lazy communicator. Uh, I, I that small voice in the back of my head said, this isn't a good idea. And I went ahead anyway, people, all the things they're recognizing. And then what kind of feelings? Well, people have different feelings and it's not always a, a rose garden. People may experience embarrassment or regret, or even it may feel very challenging or disorienting, but sometimes people feel it's like a relief or they feel less helpless. They feel more empowered, more clarity. They feel more mature, more adult, or like they're learning something, or they may experience empathy for the other person or for themselves. So, we get all that up there and we see there's these two landscapes, one down in the drama zone, one up in the empowerment zone. And on the line between them, I write the word circumstances. And then I go into an inquiry. Okay. If these would be this one set of circumstances, like something, it already happened. Like, let's say we have the videotape. You can experience it in these two very different ways. That seems to imply that there's choice involved. And people generally agree with that. And then I'll often say, well, does it feel like choice in the moment? No. Often we find ourselves with all those storylines and feelings going on in the drama zone and it doesn't feel like we chose that. Uh, but if we've been choosing that chronically, we're more likely to be there. But certainly those things would throw any of us down there. So, but is it a choice whether we stay there or whether it's some way, somehow we found some way to make the shift? And most people will agree, yes, that's true. There's choice involved at some point. Well, then what does that say about the nature of circumstances? And I usually pull it from the audience and someone finally says circumstances are neutral. And then I usually, sometimes I have them stew on that overnight, uh, but eventually I usually lead a discussion around that. And I really encourage people to really dialogue about it and chew into it and argue about it 
And, you know, uh, people will get it for themselves, but what about those terrible things that happen to other people? And, you know, so we get into a big dialogue about it because I really want people to chew on it because it's a tough one. But what it really comes down to is circumstances are neutral. It's not a value statement about the circumstances. Some circumstances obviously feel a lot less neutral than others. Some circumstances are criminal, negligent, terrible, right? But what it's pointing to, again, is choice that where's our choice in something, right? Once a circumstance is there, it's pointing to the choice. And, and I invite people to just think about your life. If you walk through life feeling like if X happens, you have to feel this way. If X happens, you have to go down the rabbit hole. Or if you go through life looking for the neutrality and it's like, where's my choice? Where's the neutrality here? What can I do? Where's my choice? What are my options? It's a very different kind of uh, way to live. And, and most people eventually see that it's incredibly empowering. And sometimes I'll use stories like Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, where in Auschwitz, the most infamous death camp of the Nazi Holocaust, he discovered that stripped of any ounce of human dignity, starving to death, naked, emaciated, with a gun pointed at your head, you still have choices. And what he says, we always have choice over the attitude that we bring to a situation. Now, that choice can be hard-earned because if we've been bringing anger and bitterness and fear to something our whole lives. It may be hard to make a new choice when push comes to shove, but people have. And uh, so it's better to start learning with the small circumstances rather than waiting for that big one. Now, Fleet, I just have two final questions for you. One is that, as I mentioned, moving from the drama zone to the empowerment zone, I haven't found wholly, completely in every part of my life is an easy thing to do. And reading your book, Radical Responsibility, one of the things that impressed me was how much inner work is actually involved. This is like inner weightlifting or something. There's inner work required here. And I wonder if you have a comment about that. Yeah, I believe it is deep inner work. Um, And, uh, you know, the training, the event with these, at least some of these distinctions came out of is is a really deep uh, process training. But, you know, to taking this path and the book represents deep inner work. And uh, but the the results are incredibly profound. And towards the end, one of the last chapters is a chapter on the heart mind. And this is this idea that through uh, contemplative practices of meditation, various, you know, contemplative spiritual practices, mindfulness, meditation in whatever tradition, these these inner practices combine with this. perspective of radical responsibility where we choose to focus our energy on what you know seeing my role in creating things and seeing my role in creating different things if i want something different than what i'm getting right now so that this actually and also having this uh fun basic understanding you know i i like the expression that uh i think tony robbins used that in his trainings he's trying to help people become practical psychologists like you don't have to be a phd but to have enough insight into how our psychology works, and I also think how our physiology and neurobiology works, that we can actually navigate life more skillfully. So that psychological knowledge and insights, the physiological and neurobiological uh, insights and knowledge, all these things combine to giving us access to uh, what I call the heart-mind, which I think is is this um, really profoundly relational place from which to lead our lives. And I think it's what all the great spiritual traditions are pointing towards. And it's, it's where we can, you know, experience both the oneness and the diversity of life and really uh, actualize the, the most profound possibilities of, of 
of relationship in our lives, both within ourselves, so having a really positive, uh, nurturing and empowering relationship with ourselves, and also having really uh, powerful, nurturing, empowering relationships with others and with the planet and so forth of entering into a really different sphere altogether. And for me, the doorway is stepping through this sort of radical self-empowerment and then doing the work to develop more deeper and deeper levels of self-awareness and self-understanding, the ground of which has to be self-empathy. So radical responsibility can sound like kind of a tough model and maybe one of these mental toughness models. And, you know, certain some of the distinctions harken way back to the Stoics, so it may have a bit, but it's important to realize this is completely grounded in profound levels of self-empathy and self-compassion. And, and that's absolutely critical to the model. Which brings me to my final question, which is one of the themes that laces through the book, Radical Responsibility, is your full 100% trust in our basic goodness as human beings. And you write about how you even found basic goodness in uh, the prison guards when you were in prison and in your fellow prisoners. Why is it important to respect and honor basic goodness as an aspect of living with radical responsibility? I think it's really the key to our human lives and human possibilities. You know, on a physical and neurobiological level, as I mentioned before, we're hardwired for survival. And we all start off life in a very fragile circumstance. And, and you know, most of us got a mixed bag of how nurtured we were. But once we have to begin uh, ind- individuating and separating from the mother, we have to start forming some self-structure because the, the alternative is this kind of groundlessness and black hole of emptiness, which we're not at all uh, prepared to handle it at six months old or a year old and so forth. So we paste together some kind of self-structure for better or worse. And if we had a very stable, loving upbringing, we end up with a pretty functional self-structure. And, and the alternative, we can end up with gaps in that, which can create problems for us. But the whole thing, no matter how high-functioning we are, is essentially fear-based, and it's grounded in survival. At the same time, as human beings, we have the capacity to rise above that. And even that, even the, you know, we all had some hit of shame in our childhood. It's inescapable. I think it's this, this thing we get inoculated with in a human journey, which in some ways, as tragic as it may seem, and one of my biggest goals in life is to remove as much of the shame from life as possible. Nonetheless, I think it is something that triggers the hero's journey that we all go through. And, and part of that is learning to rise above our, uh, our human animal physiology, because human beings have the capacity to override that survival instinct and access higher states of consciousness from which we can live at a level of trust and relationship. And that's really grounded in experiencing that part of our being where we are in unquestionably good. And that's, again, the importance of the contemplative disciplines, where we can drop below all the noise and the noise that's within our nervous system and physiology and neurobiology, the noise in the environment. And we can drop into states of being where we just realize things are profoundly okay, that it's unquestionably workable, that we're whole, we're not missing anything, we're not broken. It's just, it's an experience that's undeniable when we have that experience. And the extent that we keep getting glimpses of that, we start trusting it more and more. And we start operating our lives less from fear and more from openness and vulnerability. We're really structured, even neurobiologically, our brain is structured to operate either from openness and vulnerability or to operate from fear. 
And to be able to operate more relationally and from vulnerability and vulnerability in a positive sense, open-heartedness, vulnerability in the way that Brene Brown uses it, our ability to do that is really grounded in our recognition of our own innate goodness, the innate goodness of others, and allows us to reach the higher states of what's humanly possible and not just live fear and survival-based lives. I've been speaking with Fleet Mall. He's written a new book. It's from 20 years after he left prison and has been working, offering trainings to all kinds of people, organizations, businesses. Uh, Fleet, you, you work in so many different environments. Yeah, actually, right now, uh, um, I was just a few weeks ago, I was up in Canada. I'm going back there in another two weeks uh, working with correctional officers and probation and parole officers, introducing mindfulness, introducing the drama zone, empowerment zone distinction, introducing radical responsibility as a way that they can take ownership for creating more wellness and resiliency for themselves. The, uh, the data shows that correctional officers have a life expectancy two decades less than the rest of us because of their exposure to chronic stress and trauma, primary and secondary trauma. So uh, um, actually, even before that, I'm going to be leading a, a, an intensive mindfulness uh, retreat, a weekend retreat for uh, correctional uh, managers and, and correctional officers up in Oregon. So it's really interesting to be able to bring this work uh, to that population, as well as to into the, the corporate sphere and into the prisons and into healthcare and people working with uh, people experiencing homelessness. So, you know, there, there's, I, think, um, I think we're all thirsting for, you know, especially with what's going on in our world right now and what's going on in our world politically, we're all thirsting for and longing for something that offers a, a different way of being and, and a more hopeful view of life. Check out the new book, Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. With Sounds True, Fleet Mall has also created the audio series, Living with Radical Responsibility. Fleet, uh, thank you. Thank you for being so inspiring and presenting the Empowerment Zone. What can I do to the Sounds True audience? Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. At Sounds True, we are dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely accessible. The new Sounds True Foundation exists to remove financial barriers and make sure that people in communities of need have access to transformational tools and teachings. You can find out more at SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You can also read a full transcript of this episode at SoundsTrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you haven't already done so, and you want to subscribe to Insights at the Edge, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in your listening app. And if you hear something that really matters to you, that changes you, then share that insight and this podcast with others. Together, we can wake up the world. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to being with you next time. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.